This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding, a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello again from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, and this is what I did next. I welcome a new guest each episode, and we take a deep dive into their personal journeys, exploring the twists and turns their lives have taken to understand what these pivotal moments mean. On today's episode, screenwriter and film producer Mohamed Herzi joins me to talk about his life's journey and how his love for football has come with consequences. I remember um, watching the European Champions League final in 1999, Manchester United versus Bayern Munich, and I actually broke my leg watching a game at home. How did you do that? Can we just take a break in the regular <laughs> conversation? How did that happen? <laughs> I I was celebrating a goal and I jumped up, hit the ceiling and, you know, came down with a sprain. That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You actually broke your leg? Well, it was like a torn ligament. Oh, my God. I was in a cast for four weeks. Were it. you alone in the room or were there other had, people? No, I had friends and obviously <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of things that made us excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, that was uh, so. I, I'm probably the only person ever to watch, you know, to break their leg watching a game. Passively of, watching a game. Playing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hevzi is the award-winning film producer behind mega hits such as Clash, Sheikh Jackson, Microphone, Paranormal, and Perfect Strangers, to name but a few of the films that make up his incredible repertoire. Hevzi began his career as a screenwriter, but made the transition to producing quite quickly, realizing he wanted more control of the filmmaking process as a whole. Through his company, The Film Clinic, he does just that, not only developing his own movies, but producing new and emerging talent as well. Hevzi and I go way back to his pre-film industry days when we were both London-based. Meeting in a formal interview setting gave me a license to ask him all my nerdy questions about the film industry that you can't get away with at a party. Hevzi is a soft-spoken person with a very clear vision of what he wants and an ability to translate what's happening around him in authentic, honest, and gripping movies. His creative side and his passion for screenwriting were apparent early on. He wrote his first screenplay while he was studying for an engineering degree at university in the UK. You know, some people, you know, have one hemisphere in their brain that kind of dominates the other. Yep. And, and for me, it's always been a weird mix. Pulling back and forth. Yeah. A, part, a big part of me, a very emotional, uh, needy, uh, romantic part of me wanted to um, tell stories that inspire people that, you know, that uh, as a, move as people. As a young man, as a teenager, did you write? Were yeah. you writing like privately and yes. for yourself? For sure, yeah. I, w I, was, uh, I used to write poetry. I used to write short stories. Uh, I, uh, and then at some point at university, I decided to write a, my first screenplay. Um, and, and I think that came out of a interest first in theater and then literature and uh, and then eventually film. So you, you finished your degree in in engineering and then you worked 
in your family business for a while i still do in a way that, that mm. was always the plan you yeah. know that was always the plan to come back and, and help up the family business and um you know and then things began to change but i never really pulled out completely from the family i'm still kind of attached somehow yeah. and how did you tell your dad one day i'm sorry that i really want to pursue this how did you make that leap i know i didn't have to apologize it was just, it just happened one day i was um I, I i wrote a screenplay when i was at university thinking you know it'll probably just sit there forever or maybe i'll produce it you know or direct it and it's funny because my like my father my father and my mother like they're they were friends with everybody in the industry and i grew up around actors and directors and all that but i never thought to have anything to do with that field you know and um and when i wrote my first screenplay it was in english i it was while i was in london i thought maybe i'll do it independently you know with some friends in the uk uh, in the thought, uk yeah. yeah and uh like we didn't have any money but we, we said we'll just you know we'll do it with, with no tell budget me about that first screenplay it was called letting go and uh it, it was quite a somber uh piece really uh it was it was really a film about somebody who who suffers the tragedy of losing any sense of feeling not like touch like the senses no i'm, I'm talking about like emotions emotional. emotions yes and what makes them lose that ability well, that's what you find out when you read the script. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it, it that's was kind of dark. It was dark. Yes. And and I think for, for a 19 year old, it's not your usual. No. Yeah. Subject matter. Best. I never did it. And uh, but it ended up being my calling card. Right. For professional writing. And, and that's how I was hired to uh, to write a script by, by a filmmaker who read that script and, and said, this is good. You know, you should. You should write my next film. So that was in English. Yes. And then everything after that was in Arabic. Uh, yes. Well, almost. Yeah, almost everything. Uh, if I remember correctly, your Arabic wasn't strong enough to be writing in Arabic directly, right? The first film, I was not comfortable writing directly in Arabic. Yes. So I, um, I read. I wrote it mostly in English with Arabic dialogue, but uh, the Egyptian dialect was easy for me, so I, I wrote the Egyptian dialect, but. The classical Arabic was hard, so in terms of like description, action, etc., it was all in English. And and I realized later, people made such a big deal of it at the beginning, and I realized later that this is very common. Mm -hmm. uh, I work with a lot of uh, Arab filmmakers and Arab writers who write their drafts in English and mm -hmm. then you know mm -hmm. translate. So it's more common than than is assumed. Then it's simply because honestly, in in cinema, language is not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's not fiction, it's not uh, prose, it's not. You don't have to, as long as you know you don't have to write elevated language in, well in, also in film is is it's colloquial right so you're writing like we talk in in egypt you're you're writing with a di with the dialect of egypt right the egyptian dialect it's not about the wording it's not about the language so much 100 it's not about the wording it's uh it's more about the image it's more about the thoughts that that drive those words it's more about the subtext it's more about the tension uh it's more about building a character um it's about structure you know like th this is what screenplay is it's not necessarily about what is you know how how a room is described or you you're not writing somebody's thoughts or feelings because you can't in a screenplay so you have to you have to show them you can't you can't so write them let's just jump in quickly to a couple of the movies that really kickstart your career what are the two or three movies that stand out in your mind as being game changers I would I would say my first films as as a as a screenwriter, uh, I I think especially Salamat Aben and uh, and Malik Iskandaria, these two really 
they kind of introduced or reintroduced genres that had been kind of forgotten mm-hmm. in Egyptian cinema for you know the decade or two decades before. Um, and they weren't necessarily outright successes in the box office, but they became uh, hugely successful. Uh, well, Malekis Kadre was a success, but uh, yeah, commercially. Salam Taban was not a success commercially at the beginning, but it ended up becoming, becoming uh, kind of... Um, um, like it, it really had a following across, you know, the certain like the last two or three generations, especially you know, talk about female audiences, you know, that are now in like thirties and forties. And you're saying that you you kickstarted or you brought back a genre that had been relegated a little bit to the sidelines. What was that genre, and what made you go back to that? So with uh, Salam Taban, it was the romantic drama, uh, and uh, with uh, with Malek Sindrea, it was the crime psychological thriller mm-hmm. uh, or mystery and um and i guess uh, i tried my hand at different genres because i wanted to explore it yeah to explore different genres i did action you know with tito which also was a big success and um but but then i realized i i i want to work with other people i don't just want to you know uh, i don't just want to be a screenwriter yeah. and let other people make these films the way they see fit. I wanted to have a more, uh, uh, like, let's say more insight or more control over how films are getting made because I could see a lot of good scripts turning out into bad films. And yeah. I was wondering why that is. And I realized that the producer has so much to do with how a film turns out. And um, and I found that there's so many people with good ideas. There's a lot of underground talents that um, that don't have representation, that don't have a voice or a way into uh, this very closed loop I think in the also the fact that you started as a script writer means that now when you're when a script writer comes to you you're much more aware of the need for collaboration and and that that relationship has to be um you know uh, a two-way street in order to produce something good because you've been on the on the other side of that yeah for sure i mean um that really helped me being a being a scriptwriter really helped me to to gain writers trust you know when when i give feedback when i when i try to work with writers you know they they really listen they mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. that uh, there's a real conversation happening and um and that kind of helped me to set up film clinic in 2005 because for me it was not, it was not about producing then it was just about um helping writers and filmmakers to break into the industry and um that's really what the company was about and so i began doing uh mentorship programs and uh workshops uh you know training uh writers and uh helping writers to develop their script their craft and their screenplays and and to take them to producers and um we also did some script doctoring and that's why i called the company film clinic um so that's how it started and then i realized that i'm doing the hard part of what producing is and i should uh, and i should continue and especially when i was encouraged by uh buyers you know the like the, the the two like main studios at the time were art and rutana and they wanted content you know they wanted films and there was a gap there yeah and they encouraged me to you know they, they offered to support me financially to produce mm-hmm. What do you look back at when you know? What is your most commercially successful film to date? Well, if you measure it in terms of box office purely, I would say uh, Hepta. Although 
and I and I attribute that a lot to my producing partner at the time, uh, Hani Osama, and the director Hadid Baguri, who uh, were really creatively behind it. Yeah, uh, but uh, but also I think the films I did with. Uh, this trio of famous comedians that are now each doing their own big projects, you know, Ahmed Fahmi, Shiko, Samir, Shahir, Bahir, Warat Chafra, Banat Al Am, like these movies, their first three films basically uh, launched, you know, these guys who, who are now, you know, big stars of mm -hmm. their own. And, you know, we made pretty commercial films. And I think we did them differently enough. Uh, and uh, they were also very original in, in a way, although some of them were. Not remakes, but you know, inspired by um, you know international concepts. But uh, but we did them in a, with our own mm. you know touch. Mm. So we and which of your movies to date uh, is the one that you that you hold the dearest to your heart for whatever reason? Maybe the the process was fun, or the script moved you, or for me there there are quite a few, and I I try not to stop it think too much. But I mean, you know, going back to uh, again, speaking about films like Microphone, uh, um, you know, the films I did with Amr Salam, especially Asmet and uh, La Moerza, excuse my French, that's the English name. Uh, you know, the films I did with Mohammed Diab, uh, you know, Clash, and which opened Cannes in a certain regard, that was that was huge. That was a big, big yeah. turning point for you. Or Yomadin being in competition. Yeah, or, uh, also a big turning point. Uh, Very yeah. powerful movie, Yomadin. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, and others, I mean, even films like Soad, which I'm very proud of, even though they didn't get, you know, released in Egypt because of different reasons. But um, Feathers, which won the first feature film from Egypt to win a prize in Cannes. I mean, that was uh, yeah. that was a huge deal. I spoke to Hebzi about his writing process in some detail, and members can get this in our bonus episode, which comes out next week. When we come back in just a moment, I'll talk to him about significant events like the Arab Spring and the pandemic, and what pivotal role they had on his industry. This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding. For 40 years, EFG Holding has been realizing more for its clients across its three distinct verticals, EFG Hermes, the investment bank, EFG Finance, the non-bank financial institutions platform, and AI Bank, the commercial bank for clients looking to EFG Holding as a gateway to the most compelling equities in frontier and emerging markets. EFG Holding is for investors looking into renewables, healthcare, and education, for consumers seeking innovative solutions to achieve financial freedom, from purchasing a home to educating their children, for businesses of all sizes working to unlock their full potential, for shareholders who require visibility, profitability, and confidence in our growth strategies, and for communities in need of sustainable development to drive change. EFG Holdings' goal is to build an ecosystem of businesses that work seamlessly together to provide clients with best-in-class, end-to-end financial solutions at every stage of their lives or the growth of their businesses, creating a positive impact on our society, economy, and the environment. EFG Holding is a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. See the world differently and realize more with EFG Holding. Welcome back. This is my conversation with film producer Mohammed Hevzi. Who funds in the Middle East films? I mean, where do you as a producer have to, once you've, you've got a project that you want to work on, do you then have to go and find the money? 
it's the producer's jo main job is to find the money, yeah. of course, yes. And and there are limited sources in in the region. Um, whereas in the West, you know, especially in Europe, I mean, America is, is a different case, and 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 also Bollywood. Um, because these are uh, huge markets, yeah, and huge industries as well. Huge yeah. industries, huge markets. Yeah. They have their own rules, their different financing mechanisms, and and they're, they're kind of like self-sustainable because they, because the mar their market is so big. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you and Egypt is to a lesser extent also the case. It, it used to be that more, but even even now because of the cinema in Saudi Arabia opening up, but um, but in most countries around the world, cinema is you know the economy of cinema is is very much dependent on government subsidies and uh, government support so uh, and it forms part of the cultural output of 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 a government of a country yes yeah, of a country yeah of yeah. course of course yes so you take care of for example i mean every almost every country in europe that produces cinema has like a national film center or a uh, uh, certain authority that represents the ministry of culture or this or the you know body of professionals yeah. or something that you know that supports film or a film commission, or you know, they have different purposes and different um, authorities. But the, the the overall goal is that you know, even public channels like public TV, um, you know, you take for example RT or ZDF or like uh, any of the European mm -hmm. uh, Film Four in the UK as well, Film Four, yeah. the BBC. Yeah, um, you know, they they support cinema. They buy films. They they co-produce. They finance. Um, and so without public money and public television it's very hard for european cinemas to be sustainable uh it, it, it cannot depend just on the revenues created by um the market except for you know some very commercial films that you know that um that will you know make hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of admissions in in, in their countries yeah um and in the middle east are there are there private individuals or is it corporations it's, or in the middle east uh, for independent art house cinema or documentaries there are or i would say more creative documentaries not like necessarily tv documentaries there are certain grants and uh, and funds that you can access but they're quite limited so mm -hmm. the biggest one is the newly launched red sea film fund yeah. which is part of the red sea film yeah. festival uh and uh basically it's i say it's new although it's now almost three years old but uh but they support films with you know amounts up to five hundred thousand dollars for a project for example normally is that considered big that's very big even at international standards really yes yeah uh for the rest it's really much smaller there's the doha film institute mm -hmm. there's the arab funds for arts and culture which is based in beirut and are there any private sources for funding uh it, it's basically companies and yeah. equity money so right. like in, you know investors individuals who want to support or invest in film but i'm surprised there's no yet um sort of venture capital idea to fund the movie industry you know because it's a huge industry in the middle east well there 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 are some i mean there, there's one that's recently invested in my company i mean it's uh it's an egyptian uh fund you know set up by the government right um and um there are hardly any i don't i don't know of many in in, in the region i mean mm. now i think it's going to happen because um because of the growing market in saudi arabia and the theatrical revenues you get there mm. uh justify 
uh, investment in yeah. you know in Egyptian and Saudi films that yeah that make money because right now they're the only films that make money outside of Hollywood and Bollywood is Egyptian films and mm. Saudi films mm. in theaters. And are you writing less now because you're yeah. producing more? Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. I mean, I wish I I wish I could use my development team to uh, help me write, but uh, but I'm I'm using them to develop material written by other people right so that we can produce as a company and how does that make you feel that you're not involved in that first step anymore well i try to be involved in the development as much as i can so i give feedback i read i i talk to writers I, you know we try to but what i mean is do you miss yes not sure. being the writer i do i do yes yeah i i miss the loneliness of it i miss it's quite an intense thing to be working alone like that and then having yeah. it come alive yeah right? absolutely absolutely it's kind of like my my plan b if, you know if uh everything fails and the company goes bust you know then i'll just go back <laughs> i'll go back and be a writer go back to your room and write <laughs> not sure if anybody would want to hire me at that time but yeah one of the things i want to ask you about is the arab spring the the revolution was yeah. that a, i always feel that it was a turning point in maybe not necessarily the local uh, cinema industry, but how the West and foreigners perceive the Middle East. Because I feel that there was suddenly a spotlight being put on our part of the world in everything. And that also happened in the industry. Yes. Tell me about whether that was a pivot point purely on an industry level and how things changed after that. It's interesting because I think that uh and you know independent cinema in in egypt had started before the revolution uh when do you date it to do you date it to a, a particular time the independent scene well i think like 2004 2006 i mean there you, you saw if, people like Yusri Nasrallah doing a film like El Medina, for example, shooting it on digital and, uh, or Mohammed Khan having his own like digital film. And, you know, there was this emergence of that, of the concept of digital films, which yeah. now are the norm because everybody shoots digitally. Um, these films kind of were the independent films because they were not financed. They were, they were kind of, you know, self-financed by their yeah. creators and producers and directors. So, um, so they were really the seeds of independent cinema, but I think especially Ibrahim al-Batut and Ahmed Abdullah. Uh, Ibrahim al-Batut, uh, when he made his films like Ain Shams or Ahmed Abdullah, when he made, even before Microphone, when he made Heliopolis, uh, which I, which was, I think, 2008. These were really, in my opinion, two of the most important uh, films of independent cinema before the revolution. And they kind of set the scene for what's to come. Um, then I did microphone with Ahmed Abdullah, and I get, and I think that really also helped to uh, shed light on Egyptian cinema because that film traveled to more than sixty festivals. It won so many awards internationally. It was hugely popular, yeah. I mean, it was popular not necessarily in a commercial sense, but it was like a cultural. Uh... It was a watershed moment. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Microphone was really for me. That was the introduction to that world, um, and uh, it premiered in Toronto, which is a very big festival, and then went on to like more than sixty festivals. So yeah, and it's ironic because Microphone, the premiere was the twenty fifth of January. Was it? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was just wow. Destiny, you know, couldn't couldn't have come at a wow. more symbolic time. But did it actually happen? The premiere? No, it did, and we went to we went to the cinema, and I, you know, and there were, there were very few people there. Wow, was it downtown? It was downtown. There were protests in the street, so I called my director and I'm like, "Where are you?" And he said, "I'm in the square." 
He forgot about the premiere completely. He decided not to come to the premiere. He just he went to. <laughs> wow! So you joined him? <laughs> no, I didn't join him, but I but I, we we showed the film to the the journalists and the few people yeah. that were there. Um, and then it played for literally one day, and then the twenty eighth. Yeah. Uh, or two days and then yeah. the 28th everything stopped and you yeah, know as you yeah, know yeah. friday the 28th everything stopped in egypt and uh and that was the end that's really interesting yeah but subsequently do you see that the revolution was a time of change for example i mean i always think that the the foreigners suddenly woke up and realized hey there is a middle east hey they have a cinema there is an industry out there um you know I don't know if it's just a perception from me or if there really was a change. Well, I don't know if there was, there was definitely a, resur a resurgence or let's say uh, a big growth in the, in the documentary sector. So yeah. a lot of documentaries became exposed uh, in big Western festivals and then some fiction films, but the fiction films that came out at the beginning, I think most of them were not all that good. Yeah. Uh, and festivals were just looking for Arab, Arab spring films. You know the big international yeah. festivals because yeah. festivals do that. You know when when now that it's a zeitgeist. There's a, there's a Ukraine war. You know if there's a mediocre Ukraine movie, you, you, it's more likely to get selected than you know it, than a better film that is not about. You know. uh, so so I had suddenly I had you know a film in Venice and Toronto that was about the revolution and other people. Yusuf Nasrallah made it into competition in Cannes with After the Battle, which was not his best film, but you know it was, it was uh, timely. But it was timely. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so people, the West was looking for, for, you know, for stories that represent what's happening, but did it really change things overall? I mean, it, I think the change was happening anyway. Um, it may have shed more light, uh, mm -hmm. on, on, you know, in the efforts and the work of especially underground culture, uh, in, in film, mm -hmm. music, photography, art. Talk to me a little bit about censorship. How do you auto? Do you self-censor? Do you know what the where the line is? How do you deal with that? If I don't talk to you about censorship, is that self-censoring? <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. We'll get into more of that after this short break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to my conversation with Mohammed Hevzi. Talk to me a little bit about censorship. It's also a ubiquitous thing. It's it's global. It's not just a Middle East. No, I, I I'll be very honest with you. I think it's it's not a very good time for you know for freedom of expression. Everyone knows that, uh, and uh, it's not a very good time for filmmakers if if you know if they want to create films that deal with challenging subjects, um, you know, more serious films and and. Um, and independent filmmakers and and auteurs who want to tell stories that represent them it's 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 hard not only because of censorship but because there's very few people who um who can find support you know financial support for their films and production distribution um so it's 
but I think that's going to change. I think it's going to get better. Um, and I, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's not just the official censorship. I think it's social media. I think it's, um, you know, public opinion can be really harsh and, uh, criticism and, uh, the kind of attack that you can suffer on social media can be just as bad as, um, as the censorship you face, you know, from the officials. So mm-hmm. it, it's a double-edged sword though, right? Hezi, because you have social media, which has made everything open, yeah. right? Mm. And everything is uh, more transparent and everything is out there to be seen. Yeah. And at the same time, alongside that, the criticism and the critiquing and that everyone is fair game is also out there. Yeah, but it, it's just the culture of uh, accepting our differences is not there. And that's societal, but right? We don't know how to how to disagree on opinions, on points of view on identities uh, we don't always have to clash about it we don't always have to attack each other and that's a culture that just seems lost in the madness of these loud voices on social media but it's interesting because it's not only a middle east thing i mean you could have just been describing the united states the united kingdom these culture clashes are happening everywhere and there's less and less tolerance for the other person's voice you're right and and you know you can say that the left and and the right are very polarized in the us but i i think that there's also a lot of middle ground that dilutes it and um and here i think the i i also think here in egypt the middle class has has kind of lost its voice because it's lost its power right because it's, it's lost, lost its, its, power, its yes. financial power true so i think that that it's lost its voice and i don't mean middle class only Economically speaking, I mean, in terms of also identity, mm-hmm. you, you know, this is a country where you have a lot of extremes, extreme wealth, extreme poverty, extreme fanaticism, you know, extreme, extremely liberal. But hasn't that always been the case in Egypt? But social media magnified it. It has magnified yes. it. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. shown you the extremes. Yes, of course. And um, and I think it and I think it also got worse. And I, I tried to make a movie about this in... in um, long time ago when it came out in 2020 called Rasasan and Year's Eve. I remember that movie. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you've seen it. And it was exactly about that. Yeah. And that film, by the way, was stopped by the censorship for an entire year. That's a pretty, it was a really very jarring movie, actually. Did you think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because of the the extremes that you talk about. Yeah. yeah. And how has Netflix or the streaming services generally changed changed the industry? Does it change how you approach a project do you think in your head netflix or mainstream distribution cinema distribution well yeah you you first have to separate you know the the acquisitions versus the original productions yes so the acquisitions they acquire you know arab content since a long time and really there's sometimes there's no difference at all the quality from what you see on netflix and what you see in other streaming services so um so what you see on Shahid or what you see on Watch It or what you see on, you know, in terms of films and TV series, if they're acquisitions, I really don't think there's much of a difference in quality. Um, I think what Netflix, the way they do things differently is when it comes to original productions, because they're much more hands-on. They're really uh, invested in the uh, development process, in the production throughout its different uh, phases, uh, in the marketing of uh, of the uh, projects that they invest in as well as the distribution because they're they're dubbing these films they're subtitling in you know probably more than 20 languages dubbing them in like eight languages mm. releasing them for 
like 190 territories. So it's uh, it's really a huge chance to uh, expose your films uh, internationally and TV series. So when we did Paranormal, for example, we we knew this is our chance to you know to have an Egyptian show show in 190 countries in, in a global way. In a global yeah, way, yeah. yeah. And uh, when we did the first Netflix original film in Arabic, it was Perfect Strangers, and it was. It was in the top 10 mm. movies globally. And that was uh, a remake, right? Of an Italian movie? Yeah, and it ended up being in the it's a great, great non-English language yeah. uh, top 10 globally for that's several gone, weeks. And that's been remade in many markets, I think, right? It's been, yeah, more yeah. than 10 markets. It's a, good, yes. uh, yeah. it's a great show. And how has the entry of Saudi into the, the Middle East film industry, will it, I mean, I think it's too soon to tell, but will that change the landscape? Will it change the nature of movies? Will it change the subject matters? How is that going to change? And I know they have a, a, you mentioned it earlier, the Red Sea Film Festival, which is, you said, in its third or fourth year. Last year, of course, was a big splash. Yeah, uh, last year was, than... was the second edition. Yeah. Uh, this year will be the third. It, 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 you know, it's growing and it, it started big and it's growing because, they, you know, there's so much money behind it. Yeah. But also because um, it's a festival that I think uh, excites a lot of people internationally because the concept of... You know, there's money there to be, yeah. you know, to be tapped into, and um, and there's also a growing market, and there are subsidies and, and incentives for production for international productions. You know, they last year they announced a forty percent cashback rebate for foreign productions. Are there strings attached to that? Well, you have to spend the money in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Yeah, but well, I mean, I mean, in terms of content. No, it's not. Uh, it's not selective. It's uh, you just have to fulfill the requirements. And uh, and then you probably, of course you have to get the permission of GCAM, which is the uh, censorship authority or the authority that approves content. But uh, but that's pretty simple. And and is that an area you can you might work in? We well, I am. I'm. I'm. I just shot a film in Saudi Arabia and uh, between you Saudi. Finished, you finished. A film. I shot two films in in Saudi Arabia last year. Okay. Uh, both finished in December, and both will hopefully come out this year. So. Uh, so definitely, it's something I'm I'm really focused on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how is that experience different to working here? What I like about it is that it's fresh. It's starting from scratch, so you, you know we don't have to like here. I feel like you have to take away a lot of the, you know, like this industry was founded by Europeans, right? Um, the the basics of the yeah. industry were French and Italians, yeah. and and you know these people taught the Egyptians and then the Egyptians really creatively took over and and they started you know creating the studios and the films etc so we have an infrastructure we have an industry uh, but we've also gotten uh, very lazy and very greedy and uh, and we become very chaotic and unorganized but that's our nature and I think that's become our nature <laughs> yeah, yes unfortunately yeah. what I like about Saudi Arabia although there's no there's no industry there's no infrastructure is that you can build from scratch yeah and uh, you know you could really create a good infrastructure, a good system, uh, good practices. And the only thing is you need to teach people. Yeah. And uh, and maybe that requires. Then that's why that Egyptians are so busy in terms of crew and directors and photographers and you know art directors etc. They're all going to do projects there at the moment, which created inflation, obviously. Um, but eventually they're going to need to build their own crew their yeah. own and the two projects you just finished are the stories relating to saudi they're completely saudi they're totally yeah, saudi with saudi actors yeah interesting wow yeah, yeah. and so you had a, a local screenwriter you had someone who who would be 
involved with the whole cultural element, right? One of them is, uh, yeah, a filmmaker doing her first film. She's also, you know, we're co-producing this film together. And it's a woman. That's that's great. Yeah, first film. Yeah, yeah. Writer, yeah. director, actress as well. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, the other is an Egyptian director, but a, a Saudi story. Yeah. And this is a film that that was financed mainly, uh, well, financed by. You'll be surprised by the biggest oil company in the world, Aramco. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But they have a cultural yeah, uh, yeah. institution. You know. So tell me, what's next for you? Where Where do you see yourself in five years? Are you going to you see yourself doing more of what you're doing or letting something go, going into another, well, if onto you ask another me, path? If you ask me in 12 years or 15 <laughs> years, I hope to say retired. But, uh... <laughs> You'll still be too young for that, though. <laughs> well, not fully retired, but, but working less. <laughs> We're doing more. We're going back to writing. We're going back to writing yeah. and just doing things that I really love and and uh, doing more hobbies. Yeah. Uh, what are your well, hobbies? Uh, or you don't have time. I I don't have time anymore. But I I uh, I want to I want to discover what my hobbies are again because they, my hobbies have changed. I'm sure since childhood. Uh, what were they when you were younger? I was uh, sports. You know, and, and I like traveling. I like, you know, I used to like tennis and football and don't retire too late though because then it will be too late for those things maybe i should pick up i don't know pick up uh, golf or something i don't know i'm sure yeah. i'm gonna do something more yeah. if i retire what about your culture life do you have time to like read uh watch movies or are you is your schedule so hectic that you really don't have time for that well, it's a blessing and a curse because Anna, I I'm I have to read and I have to watch movies for my job. You know, I um I I read maybe an average of three to five scripts a week. So uh, if if you want to talk about like page count, I think a script is like the equivalent of half a half a novel. You mm -hmm. know, like let's say an average, you yeah. know, 200, 250 page book. Right. You know, a script is like half of that. Right. So, so if I devoted that time to reading other things, I'd probably be reading two books a week. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be reading more than, you know, a uh, hundred books a year. So that's the equivalent, uh, the reading time, which, which I devote to reading usually bad scripts because I, the most of the scripts are that are out there that we receive are not all that good because that's why, you know, we filter. And do you do that yourself or do you have a team for that? Or do you get the final selection? At the end both i mean i have people who read yeah. um so I, I would say overall you know as a company we we probably read more than 250 to 200 scripts a year uh but not just scripts i mean these are scripts or treatments yeah let's say submissions in general i mean just they, they, ideas they, or they, yeah. yeah i mean they could yeah. be they could be treatments what is a treatment a treatment is like a uh like a summary synopsis, a kind of thing? A synopsis but told in a cinematic way but then especially for cinema okay. so it's it's how the story is cinematically treated you know so it's not just like um uh, a long time ago there was you know no it's actually like you kind of in a slightly visual way the the, the context of the story and how the story unfolds uh, as if you were kind of watching a film but without the details of uh, scene by scene script right some treatments can go up to like 50 pages or 40 pages uh, a typical treatment is like 10 12 pages so it's uh, it's not exactly synopsis. It's a bit more detailed than that. And just to go off on a tangent for a minute, why do some people send full scripts and why do some people send treatments only? Because usually the treatment is a step along the way to creating the you know the the final draft. If there's interest, then they take it further, right? 
yeah, some, some, sometimes they submit a treatment because they haven't written a script or because the person reading just wants to read a treatment at the stage because they don't have the time to read the full script. So it's a useful document. Um, and anyway, when you submit your application for funding, usually the treatment is required. And, you know, and, um, it's, uh, so it's a step that I think is needed even to prepare for writing the, the draft. Uh, so I read, so going back to your question, so I read, uh, a lot of scripts. I watch a lot of films because I, because I have to either films that we are considering for, you know, for example, for distribution acquisition or films that, um, let's say I'm a jury member in a festival and I have to watch, um, I have to watch maybe, you know, 15 or 20 or 12 films in a certain competition or, um, or I'm watching films for the Academy. If I'm voting um, every year, you know, starting, <clears throat> let's say, starting uh, November, December until January, or... you know, until February, that whole voting process yeah. takes a lot of and time. And you have so... to watch every movie that's that's being put forward, right? Uh, not really, because that's, I mean, then you'd be watching like 250, 300 films. And that's, so I guess some people do that, but I don't have the time to watch all the films. So I, um, so just to give you an example for best film, there there are usually uh, between two to three hundred films submitted, um, and uh, I probably, you know, watch maybe twenty of them. Uh, some I will have seen anyway throughout the year. In you know maybe they're out in theaters or they're in Netflix or I see them in a festival, uh, and uh, others I will I will hear about them and I'll watch them on the platform we have we have a platform for academy members it's like they're our own Netflix you know mm -hmm. and we get mm -hmm. you know we get all the you access submissions all the movies. Yeah, yeah exactly so um, and then there are the international films which I take part in uh, the uh, the committee like I opt into the international committee so that I can watch the international films because that's the space where I work you know so I. Uh, I guess I really uh, try to watch as many as I can. I mean, I there is a required viewing list, so I have to watch at least, like, depends from year to year. You know, it could be from 10 to 15. And you, as a member of the Academy, are you part one of the people responsible for the nomination process? Yeah. So you yeah. have to watch a really wide pool of movies to put forward the nominations, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So for uh, as, uh, as a member of the International Committee, as, as a producer also, um, so I get to watch uh, and nominate from the international films, but I also, uh, everybody gets to nominate the best film. So uh, so the best film and best international, these are the two branches in which I nominate. Uh, and then once the nominations are out, then I have to vote for all the categories uh, for the final winners. You know, that's, uh, so, so I really- It's a really time-consuming It's time-consuming if you right? take it seriously. And, and I, I take it seriously because I take pride in, you know, in the fact that I'm, I'm an Academy member. And I think it's, it's something that also, when I have more time, I think I would really enjoy yeah. watching films and voting and being, you know, and kind of- And you've been doing that now for four years, right? Three or four, yeah. yeah. And, and how, uh, how many people from the Arab world are part of the Academy like you? I I don't know exactly the number, but I think it's probably more than fifty now. I mean, it's oh, really? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's probably. Okay. I mean, I know in Egypt alone, there's like six or seven members. Um, and it's a combination of people behind the camera as well as actors, or or are yeah. actors not involved in yeah, that actors process? Yeah, actors are. I mean, Yosra, for example, is a member. Yeah. Um, uh, there's Amr Salama. There's Mohammed Diab. There's Jahan Najim, there's uh, yeah. Muhammad Siam, there's, there's a few. There's a list, there's, yeah. There's like yeah, six, yeah, or seven, yeah, yeah. six or seven Egyptian yeah, yeah. members of the academy, plus I think more than 50 Arabs in general. Yeah.
Well, Hevzi, thank you so much. Welcome. That was amazing. <laughs> that was screenwriter and producer Mohammed Hevzi, a powerhouse of the Egyptian movie scene. Hevzi was president of the Cairo Film Festival for four years. He's a regular of the International Film Festival circuit and can be spotted at Cannes, Sundance and Venice as both a jury member as well as in competition. Hevzi was cited among 30 future leaders in film production by Screen International and was among Variety's 500 list of the most influential people in the media industry worldwide. If you're a member of the show, you'll get a bonus episode next week where Hevzi dives deeper into the writing process and how different it is for him to produce other people's work versus his own. If you'd like to watch extended clips from our interviews, you can find them on our new YouTube channel. And you can also connect with us by searching for What I Did Next on Instagram, X, and on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Malak Fuad, and you've been listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. See you in a couple of weeks.